Book two, chapter six of Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by John Greenman. Personal Recollections of Joan of Arc by Mark Twain. Book two, chapter six. Joan convinces the king. Well, anything to make delay. The king's council advised him against arriving at a decision in our matter too precipitately. He arrive at a decision too precipitately? So they sent a committee of priests, always priests, into Lorraine to inquire into Joan's character and history, a matter which would consume several weeks, of course. You see how fastidious they were. It was as if people should come to put out the fire when a man's house was burning down, and they waited till they could send into another county to find out if he had always kept the Sabbath or not, before letting him try. So the days poked along dreary for us young people in some ways but not in all for we had one great anticipation in front of us we had never seen a king and now some day we should have that prodigious spectacle to see and to treasure in our memories all our lives so we were on the lookout and always eager and watching for the chance the others were doomed to wait longer than i as it turned out one day great news came the orleans commissioners with yolande and our knights had at last turned the council's position and persuaded the king to see joan joan received the immense news gratefully but without losing her head but with us others it was otherwise we could not eat or sleep or do any rational thing for the excitement and the glory of it during two days our pair of noble knights were in distress and trepidation on joan's account for the audience was to be at night and they were afraid that Joan would be so paralyzed by the glare of light from the long files of torches, the solemn pomps and ceremonies, the great concourse of renowned personages, the brilliant costumes, and the other splendors of the court, that she, a simple country maid, and all unused to such things, would be overcome by these terrors and make a piteous failure. No doubt I could have comforted them, but I was not free to speak would joan be disturbed by this cheap spectacle this tinsel show with its small king and his butterfly dukelets she who had spoken face to face with the princes of heaven the familiars of god and seen their retinue of angels stretching back into the remoteness of the sky myriads upon myriads like a measureless fan of light a glory like the glory of the sun streaming from each of those innumerable heads the massed radiance filling the deeps of space with a blinding splendor i thought not queen yolanda wanted joan to make the best possible impression upon the king and the court so she was strenuous to have her clothed in the richest stuffs wrought upon the princeliest pattern and set off with jewels but in that she had to be disappointed of course joan not being persuadable to it but begging to be simply and sincerely dressed as became a servant of god and one sent upon a mission of a serious sort and grave political import. So then the gracious queen imagined and contrived that simple and witching costume which I have described to you so many times, and which I cannot think of even now in my dull age, without being moved just as rhythmical and exquisite music moves me. For that was music, that dress. That is what it was, music that one saw with the eyes and felt in the heart yes she was a poem she was a dream she was a spirit when she was clothed in that 
She kept that raiment always, and wore it several times upon occasions of state, and it is preserved to this day in the treasury of Orleans, with two of her swords, and her banner, and other things now sacred because they had belonged to her. At the appointed time the Count of Vendôme, a great lord of the court, came richly clothed with his train of servants and assistants, to conduct Joan to the king, and the two knights and I went with her, being entitled to this privilege by reason of our official positions near her person. When we entered the great audience-hall, there it all was, just as I have already painted it. Here were ranks of guards in shining armor and with polished halberds. Two sides of the hall were like flower-gardens for variety of color and the magnificence of the costumes. Light streamed upon these masses of color from two hundred and fifty flambeaux. There was a wide free space down the middle of the hall, and at the end of it was a throne royally canopied, and upon it sat a crowned and sceptred figure, nobly clothed and blazing with jewels. It is true that Joan had been hindered and put off a good while, but now that she was admitted to an audience at last, she was received with honors granted to only the greatest personages. At the entrance-door stood four heralds in a row, in splendid tabards, with long, slender silver trumpets at their mouths, with square silken banners depending from them embroidered with the arms of France. As Joan and the Count passed by, these trumpets gave forth in unison one long, rich note, and as we moved down the hall under the pictured and gilded vaulting, this was repeated at every fifty feet of our progress, six times in all. It made our good knights proud and happy, and they held themselves erect, and stiffened their stride, and looked fine and soldierly. They were not expecting this beautiful and honorable tribute to our little country maid. Joan walked two yards behind the Count. We three walked two yards behind Joan. Our solemn march ended when we were as yet some eight or ten steps from the throne. The Count made a deep obeisance pronounced Joan's name, then bowed again, and moved to his place among a group of officials near the throne. I was devouring the crowned personage with all my eyes, and my heart almost stood still with awe. The eyes of all others were fixed upon Joan in a gaze of wonder which was half worship, and which seemed to say, How sweet! How lovely! How divine! All lips were parted and motionless, which was a sure sign that those people who seldom forget themselves had forgotten themselves now, and were not conscious of anything but the one object they were gazing upon. They had the look of people who are under the enchantment of a vision. Then they presently began to come to life again, rousing themselves out of the spell, and shaking it off as one drives away little by little a clinging drowsiness or intoxication. Now they fixed their attention upon Joan with a strong new interest of another sort. They were full of curiosity to see what she would do they having a secret and particular reason for this curiosity. So they watched. This is what they saw. She made no obeisance, nor even any slight inclination of her head, but stood looking toward the throne in silence. That was all there was to see at present. I glanced up at de Metz, and was shocked at the paleness of his face. I whispered and said, "'What is it, man? What is it?' His answering whisper was so weak I could hardly catch it. They have taken advantage of the hint in her letter to play a trick upon her. She will err, and they will laugh at her. That is not the king that sits there. Then I glanced at Joan. She was still gazing steadfastly toward the throne, 
and I had the curious fancy that even her shoulders and the back of her head expressed bewilderment. Now she turned her head slowly, and her eye wandered along the lines of standing courtiers till it fell upon a young man who was very quietly dressed. Then her face lighted joyously, and she ran and threw herself at his feet, and clasped his knees, exclaiming in that soft, melodious voice which was her birthright, and was now charged with deep and tender feeling, "'God of his grace give you long life, O dear and gentle Dauphin!' In his astonishment and exultation Demetz cried out, "'By the shadow of God, it is an amazing thing!' Then he mashed all the bones of my hand in his grateful grip, and added, with a proud shake of his mane, "'Now what have these painted infidels to say?' Meantime the young person in the plain clothes was saying to Joan, "'Ah, you mistake, my child. I am not the king. There he is,' and he pointed to the throne. The knight's face clouded, and he muttered in grief and indignation, "'Ah, it is a shame to use her so.' but for this lie she had gone through safe. I will go and proclaim to all the house what— "'Stay where you are!' whispered I and the Sieur Bertrand in a breath, and made him stop in his place. Joan did not stir from her knees, but still lifted her happy face toward the king, and said, "'No, gracious liege, you are he, and none other.' Demet's troubles vanished away, and he said, "'Verily she was not guessing, she knew. Now how could she know? It is a miracle.' I am content and will meddle no more, for I perceive that she is equal to her occasions, having that in her head that cannot profitably be helped by the vacancy that is in mine. This interruption of his lost me a remark or two of the other talk. However, I caught the king's next question. But tell me who you are, and what would you? I am called Joan the Maid, and am sent to say that the King of Heaven wills that you be crowned and consecrated in your good city of Reims, and be thereafter lieutenant of the Lord of Heaven, who is King of France. And he willeth also that you set me at my appointed work and give me men-at-arms. After a slight pause she added, her eye lighting at the sound of her words, For then I will raise the siege of Orléans and break the English power. The young monarch's amused face sobered a little when this martial speech fell upon that sick air like a breath blown from embattled camps and fields of war, and this trifling smile presently faded wholly away and disappeared. He was grave now and thoughtful. After a little he waved his hand lightly, and all the people fell away and left those two by themselves in a vacant space. The knights and I moved to the opposite side of the hall and stood there. We saw Joan rise at a sign, then she and the king talked privately together. All that host had been consumed with curiosity to see what Joan would do. Well, they had seen, and now they were full of astonishment to see that she had really performed that strange miracle according to the promise in her letter, and they were fully as much astonished to find that she was not overcome by the pomps and splendors about her but was even more tranquil and at her ease in holding speech with a monarch than ever they themselves had been, with all their practice and experience. As for our two knights, they were inflated beyond measure with pride in Joan, but nearly dumb as to speech, they not being able to think out any way to account for her managing to carry herself through this imposing ordeal without ever a mistake or an awkwardness of any kind to mar the grace and credit of her great performance. 
The talk between Joan and the King was long and earnest, and held in low voices. We could not hear, but we had our eyes and could note effects, and presently we and all the house noted one effect which was memorable and striking, and has been set down in memoirs and histories, and in testimony at the process of rehabilitation, by some who witnessed it. For all knew it was big with meaning, though none knew what that meaning was at that time, of course for suddenly we saw the king shake off his indolent attitude and straighten up like a man and at the same time look immeasurably astonished it was as if joan had told him something almost too wonderful for belief and yet of a most uplifting and welcome nature it was long before we found out the secret of this conversation but we know it now and all the world knows it that part of the talk was like this as one may read in all histories the perplexed king asked joan for a sign he wanted to believe in her and her mission, and that her voices were supernatural and endowed with knowledge hidden from mortals. But how could he do this unless these voices could prove their claim in some absolutely unassailable way? It was then that Joan said, "'I will give you a sign, and you shall no more doubt. There is a secret trouble in your heart which you speak of to none, a doubt which wastes away your courage, and makes you dream of throwing all away and fleeing from your realm.' within this little while you have been praying in your own breast that god of his grace would resolve that doubt even if the doing of it must show you that no kingly right is lodged in you it was that that amazed the king for it was as she had said his prayer was the secret of his own breast and none but god could know about it so he said the sign is sufficient i know now that these voices are of god they have said true in this matter if they have said more tell it me i will believe they have resolved that doubt and i bring their very words which are these thou art lawful heir to the king thy father and true heir of france god has spoken it now lift up thy head and doubt no more but give me men-at-arms and let me get about my work telling him he was of lawful birth was what straightened him up and made a man of him for a moment removing his doubts upon that head and convincing him of his royal right and if any could have hanged his hindering and pestiferous counsel and set him free he would have answered joan's prayer and set her in the field but no those creatures were only checked not checkmated they could invent some more delays we had been made proud by the honors which had so distinguished joan's entrance into that place honors restricted to personages of very high rank and worth but that pride was as nothing compared with the pride we had in the honor done her upon leaving it for whereas those first honors were shown only to the great these last up to this time had been shown only to the royal the king himself led joan by the hand down the great hall to the door the glittering multitude standing and making reverence as they passed, and the silver trumpets sounding those rich notes of theirs. Then he dismissed her with gracious words, bending low over her hand and kissing it. Always, from all companies high or low, she went forth richer in honor and esteem than when she came. And the king did another handsome thing by Joan, for he sent us back to Cordray Castle, torch-lighted and in state, under escort of his own troop, his guard of honor, the only soldiers he had, and finely equipped and bedizened they were, too, though they hadn't seen the color of their wages since they were children, as a body might say. 
the wonders which joan had been performing before the king had been carried all around by this time so the road was so packed with people who wanted to get a sight of her that we could hardly dig through and as for talking together we couldn't all attempts at talk being drowned in the storm of shoutings and huzzas that broke out all along as we passed and kept abreast of us like a wave the whole way end of book two chapter six